This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, and our guest today is Dr. Tommy Cook, uh, a kind, thoughtful, gentle, and brilliant man and a practicing psychiatrist here in Hawaii, and we will be talking about COVID-19 and depression. So this is an episode that all of us need to listen to because either we ourselves may have depression caused by this event, but definitely people around us will be struggling. One in five Americans struggle with depression in their lifetime, Dr. Cook told me, and depression is often caused by an event, an event like this. So let's get on with the show, and this episode has been brought to us by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film, and the Vulnerable People Project, standing with the most vulnerable people in the world at the most vulnerable time in their life. And you can join the great campaign to stand with the vulnerable at their website, thegreatcampaign.org. Here we go. The Jason Jones Show with Dr. Tommy Cook. Aloha, Dr. Cook. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks for having me. Dr. Cook, it is a privilege to have you on my show today because when I started this podcast, it was with one goal. It was to, to be useful to the vulnerable. And we knew we couldn't do a show all the time on genocide, democide, war, depression. But with what's happening now with this COVID crisis impacting the world and intimately impacting our families, this is where I think you can help this show live out its purpose, which is to be useful to the vulnerable. And what has been the impact of COVID-19 and the COVID, the response by our governments to people with depression? And has it caused depression? I don't even understand mental illness, but I have to imagine people already struggling with mental illness, which is a lot of us, right? It is. It's about, you know, 20% lifetime incidents for for women and men, it's a little less, um, but at any given time, it's it's it's, it's a it's a cross section of the population has severe depression. So twenty percent of us, sometime in our life, I had de- severe depression in college for a small period of time. So twenty percent of us will go through a period of severe depression in our life. Absolutely, yeah. And what percentage of the population would you call it chronic mental illness? Like, it's, you know, it's just addled by it for life. I'd say it's probably like one or one to five percent is going to have a more severe chronic kind of depressive recurrent kind of problem. And then when what is would you call like a depression? Like, let's say I'm a restaurant owner and things were going great. I was paying off my loans. I was making payroll. Business was booming. But this was a, a, a monthly battle to survive. And this economic collapse happens is that also depression? Like, is it not just biological? Can it be caused by external circumstances, or do they have different names? Well, psychiatry would call it a reactive depression, or, as opposed to an endogenous or a slowly developing depression that comes from you know family factors and guilt and overbearing parents, and it'd be or you know perfectionism. Those would be endogenous, but this would be more of a reactive depression, which is uh, you know it looks the same clinically. 
but yeah, it can come on real fast and uh, it's usually people that are predisposed and either on antidepressants and whatnot, but certainly un- unemployment spikes uh, depression symptoms and suicide rates are going up right now and they always do go up during ma- periods of massive unemployment. Think of the 1930s and Wall Street. And those famous pictures of people jumping off of the building. And I, after you texted me one night, I made a, a video about how businesses are mortal because you sent me that C.S. Lewis quote. Can you tell me about that? It's just a beautiful quote. Yeah, back in med school at Northwestern, I used to read a lot of bioethics journals, uh, Richard John Newhouse. And, and, I love uh, Father Newhouse. Yeah, he has so many good quotes. Um, but uh, he, I used to read C.S. Lewis, too, at the time, who wrote a lot on bioethics. So we used to have hospital ethics debates on assisted suicide and whatnot. But anyways, C.S. Lewis has a quote about public health. And he says, the problem with public health is you're not treating the individual. You're treating society as an organism as a collective organism, as one thing. And he said, public health treats the individual as a creature that dies, but it treats society as immortal, as if the evolutionary impulse to survive is like the primary, you know, you know, con- thing that you have to follow or, you know, the, the kind of the duty that we have is to sort of have the species survive. And C.S. Lewis said that's very spurious. Uh, individual medicine ought to reign supreme. Public health ought to be subservient to individ- medicine that's given to individuals. And today we have a mindset where, um, like C.S. Lewis would say, the individual is a creature that dies in society itself. We, we're, we're talking about sheer numbers and survival, and that's a pretty secular mindset. And C.S. Lewis says we really ought to consider the individual as immortal. The individual is uh, something that, can is immortal whereas society itself is going to die everything is going to die and we need to treat individuals with uh, dignity and respect and so i mean our understanding of medicine grew up out of this mindset you know within this worldview right i mean the hospital comes from the knights of the hospitaller who were the sons of the wealthiest families in europe who went to serve pilgrims and they lived like peasants, the knights, well, they served peasants, oftentimes the poorest of the poor who would go on these pilgrims, they served them off of silver platters, they slept on uh, feather beds, what are those, down pillows. And so they treated these pilgrims as creatures with infinite value. And that's Western medicine traditionally, right? It definitely is. We, we try to cure rarely, uh, heal sometimes, and comfort always. And that's the, like the, you think of the food. Can you say that again? That was beautiful. You think of the food pyramid, like you should eat, you know, the grains at the bottom and sugar at the top. Um, and really in medicine, we should always be comforting people because oftentimes medicine doesn't, doesn't do much of anything for people. I mean, we, we try, a lot of it is just a placebo and we want to give people hope and dignity. And what you need more is the moral and spiritual comfort, knowing that doctors are doing everything not that I'm going to be cured or not. And, and when it comes down to it, that's what people need. And we make fun of medicine standards 100 years ago. Oh, it's so primitive and barbaric. Well, what are they going to say 100 years from now about how we're managing COVID? And how we're, we're always, bar- in one sense, we're always barbaric. We're always progressing, but we're always, you know. So it's not about the outcome. It's about the intent and the, the dignity you give to the person. And that's what keeps people ticking, keeps them uh, with a strong sense of hope. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that's really what 
individual medicine, Western medicine is founded on is that hope and respect for the individual, not like what happens in India with Hinduism. You, you blame them for past sins of a past life and their karma. You say, oh, that's why they're suffering. But in the West, we have a strong tradition of the evil comes from outside. It can corrupt you. But in the allopathic tradition, evil comes from outside. And uh, it, as it does with the virus and as it does with uh, the devil, ultimately, in the, in the Western uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. But um, there's more dignity in that. You're, you're approaching the individual as a, somewhat as a victim, but also maybe as a participant, as a confused participant, someone who's um, not living a healthy lifestyle and they're um, not working for their own health. Or that, you know, they're genuinely traumatized and they're a victim. They need to be treated with compassion and respected. So um, it's not about the outcome. I think that the comfort always heal sometimes and cure very rarely is that should be the foundation of medicine, not what I think we have today, which is a secular mindset of kill or cure. You know, we have population control. Where are these people now during COVID? It's just crickets. They're not saying anything about this will reduce the population. And the secular mindset's either kill or cure. Either kill, or if there's a cure, then a cure. But they're both kind of desperate. I think Kierkegaard would say those both those attitudes are kind of desperate. You're either running towards death or running away from death frantically. But I, I think that being okay with death, learning to accept uh, death, that's what you find, I think, more. Western European tradition where you give dignity, help the person be reconciled to their their mortality. Momente more. That's right. There you go. Momente more. Remember you will die. Or Marcus Aurelius said, learning how to die is learning how to live as a free man. I like that. And, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I got that text from you that night. But then also my job is to fundraise, and I've been doing a lot of fundraising calls, and a lot of my donors have been sharing with me some of them really despairing and they're in a much better place than I am. And after a conversation a couple of days ago with a friend, like you're a donor, the friends and their friends and donors. And he was just really despairing and in such a better place than I am. I'll ever be. He is right now in a better place than I would ever hope to be. And so your quote, man, I sent that quote to him about how his business is mortal and trying to comfort him because his, I think his identity was so caught up with that. Um, how, so I've been having to comfort people with making my donor calls. And, and I thought after this one conversation with this guy and I drove to do one of these pickup, uh, food pickups for my family, there was one of my neighbors without homes who is this kind of old wild guy who rides a bicycle in our neighborhood and lives in the bushes down by city hall, had the biggest smile on his face. And I thought, how strange is, how strange is this? But that what you said about comforting, that's why I wanted to talk to you. Like, how can we comfort people? That quote you gave me was very comforting. And a lot of people listening to this podcast are like, I'm not in a place to comfort people, right? I'm, I'm drowning myself. Like, I don't know, who would you want to talk to first? Like those of us who want to be a comfort. I told my daughter who works at a restaurant, it's a small family-owned restaurant. I said, just call the owner of that restaurant, who's also the manager, let him know you are grateful for that job because she's been laid off and you can't wait to help build his business back up after this, that you're going to pull through. You know, if you're an employer, call your employees and say, like I've had to say to mine, I'm going to fight every step of the way to make sure we keep our team together, comfort people 
and then maybe they'll open up with you. But what would you want to, who would you want to address first? Those people who are struggling right now with reactive depression or maybe those who have, what did you call it? The, the depression that's more endogenous, endogenous, like but I guess in times like this, endogenous depression, worsens. Can, it worsens. Yeah. Who would you, who would you want to talk to first? I guess. Well, people whose hope has been thrown off, you know, I, I think they, I, I think they need to know that the vast majority of the world's in this with them. And there's a lot of poor, rich Marxist thought and dichotomizing going on right now. And that's not, that's not helpful. The vast majority of the world's in the same boat. And uh, that can be comforting, ironically. A lot of my anxiety and other patients have been telling me they've been doing great late these days. I've been doing telehealth appointments with them. And it's been strange to me that I have uh, had some issues with suicide and, uh, Suicide rates have been going up a lot um, nationally, and then there's some journalism on that right now. But nevertheless, I have patients who find meaning in the solidarity. And I just had a patient the other day tell me she feels like she's not alone now. Now everyone else is anxious. Usually she's the only one anxious in her family. Now she's the one who's not. And um, I hear a bit of that. So having That's beautiful, though. And for those of us who normally aren't anxious, this is an empathy-generating exercise. Yes. Right? Like, we can understand what other people are going through. That relative who struggles with it. I have a relative, close relative, who struggles with anxiety, and I don't understand it. That's beautiful. So this is an empathy. And she, and for her, it's comforting because now her family can understand her. Yeah, she just said that. And, um, yeah, I found that beautiful. Um, I think that brings people together. I think in a really weird way, the virus connects people. Um, I mean, the actual virus, like it literally explodes your cell and takes a fragment of DNA and puts it in the air. And that DNA now enters your body and hacks into your DNA and affects your, you on a cellular level. So it's almost like reproduction, but in some like weird unicellular way. That it shows you that solidarity is inescapable. It is. Yeah. Like original sin. That's right. The virus is literally connecting you genetically with other people or bats or whatever bats from China. I don't know where this thing comes from, but it's genetically spreading. And a virus is a cellular disease. It's not um, a superficial. It's a deeper disease. That's why it's so hard to treat. Um, but we, we're living in an isolated age. We're on a podcast now. We have radio waves everywhere and 5G. And there's all these paranoid theories about 5G and... Uh, making uh, epidemics worse or whatever. I don't. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but I find it amazing that um, we're living in an isolated time. And then the the biological meaning of a virus is that it's connecting people in an area of globalization, and obviously connecting them supposedly for the worse on a biological level. But we we don't know that there are other forms of connection that are happening which are positive. It's more than meets the eye. And people are being connected on a spiritual level now, which can be good. I don't want to call the situation good. But when you offer hope, you do need to help. You need, you need to, uh, as a doctor, when, as a psychiatrist, what I do for a living, you need to tinker with people's perspective that way and question their assumptions. Same as what Socrates would do or what, you know, good, you know, a good, a good, that's what a good doctor does ultimately. Well, it's not good, but good things can come out of horrible circumstances, right? I, you look at just in my own life, what was the tragedy of the housing collapse? 
that I lost my job and all my friends came to, we all went to work for the same company. And so me and all of my closest friends were unemployed at the same time. And so I took all the money I had in the world, loaned it to a nonprofit I started. And now that's Movie to Movement and the Vulnerable People Project started because of that catastrophe that was the housing crisis that several of my friends ended up going bankrupt. And it was hard on a lot of us. A lot of my friends had to leave Hawaii. But for me, we were able, I just, I I decided I'm never going to work for anyone again. And I'm going to start an organization that does exactly what I want to do. So if I'm going to be financially insecure, I'm going to be financially insecure doing what it is I wanted to do. And which was founded on an organization that knit together the vulnerable communities of the world and advocated for them together. And so you know what you said about comforting that's the first the, all i know about medicine is what they taught me in the army that when you come across somebody who's wounded no matter what look them in the eye and say you're going to be okay that's all i know and so that's becoming handy a lot i've come and you know witnessed a horrible car accident twice actually where i was the first on the scene and i was able to sit next to the person and say you're going to be okay so that's our job right now is to know we're going to be okay yeah. And to tell others that, that it's going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all in the same boat. You know, the world is structured, uh, is a structured place now. But, you know, I, I hear people refinancing their mortgages. We have government assistance. Not that that's good long term for the economy. But, um, you know, I think just remembering that everybody's in the same boat. Everyone's saying that now, whether right wing, left wing, because it's true. There are those trying to use division, and there are those conspiracy theories. I mean, those conspiracy theories can be very destructive too, right, for people who are suffering from depression or paranoia or other things. They really can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it just destabilizes people. I've seen so much uh, panic and hysteria in, uh, in some of my patients, and um, some, of the, some of that information is, is like a virus itself too. It can get in there and you can't get rid of it and just eats away at them. Yeah, paranoid conspiracy theories are basically the idea that if I have a good explanation, if it sounds like a tenable explanation, therefore it has validity. um, I think that's just people overvaluing their thoughts. And I I see in people in anxiety and depression, people overvalue the, the, the truth value of their thoughts so much. We really need to be able to throw our thoughts out the window. And get in the here and now as much as possible. That's yeah, and, and not that these there might be they might be true, right? I mean, some of these, for example, like I don't know, it's possible that China made a mistake and this biological weapon leaked out and they blamed it on the bat fever. That's sounds very plausible, but really, will I ever know? And will I ever know going on the dark web, reading post after post, and then being exposed to more anonymous posters? I'm getting a lot of this forwarded to me. You know, I was a conspiracy theorist when I was a young man. And I would read all of these books on, you know, secret societies and secret organizations. And I came to understand that I, even if any of this is true, I will never be able to know. And I will be as confused as an old man as I am as a young man. And I'd met old conspiracy theorists that were young, that were young once, and they, they hadn't gotten no closer to any sort of truth And that's where I reduced it all to five principles that I could do, which is promote the beauty of the human person, promote solidarity, work to bring power away from distant, unelected bureaucracies, promote solidarity, and to promote the transcendent moral order, 
and to promote uh, the Anglo-American understanding of private property and property rights. And if you had a society with those principles, no conspiracy could operate successfully anyways. And even in the midst of conspiracies or in the midst of despotism, which exists in the world today, like in China, the, the, the best thing you can do is promote human dignity and honor the dignity of the human person. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I agree with all of it. I mean, that's how I, I escaped from this desire to try to unravel the mysteries of all the evil in the world. Um, well, look, look within each one of us. The, the starting point in, in fixing the evil in the world is uh, is looking in each one of us and um, trying not to look too often across party lines uh, or within party lines more more we're working on the individual one person at a time working on yourself working on your friends um, helping increase people's uh, um, discipline and awareness so what if uh, let's role play let's say I have a friend he calls me every day he's drinking every day he lost his job in the midst of this, or lost his business. He's calling me every day drinking. He sounds unhappy. I'm sure a lot of us have friends in this situation right now. What would what would what should I do? What should we do? How should we talk to our friend? I would bring him back to the basics. What's the purpose of work? The purpose of work is money. Why money? Well, to pay my kids to go to college. Why college? Well, they get a good job. Why a job? Well, they get a house. They get a house. Why? Well, to survive. No, it's not survival. It's something more basic. Let's go back to the basics. So play Socrates with him and tease out what is the purpose of his life anyways. And uh, you might have some shy, shy, still small idea in the back of his mind. You know, I always wanted to learn guitar. I always wanted to um, connect with people in my community or build build a, you know, bring group of people like-minded and want to think like Athens, like what you're doing with this podcast. It's basically virtual Athens. And you want to, you know what I say? This is local talk for the world that we have. We're half the audience is outside the United States. Listeners in all 50 States, half the audience is outside the United States. I say we're the coolest village in the world. And this show has been hodgepodge intermittent, but it's for some reason it's knit together. And I get these beautiful emails from all over the world. And it is that is it is that for me. It's just a, it's it's a little village. It's my village. I say think local, talk global, and we have a little village. I love it. Well, I think getting a person to get their hope back is bringing back to something that's just meaningful. And a lot of people have meaningful work they can do at home right now. They can learn guitar, play piano, learn how to dance, learn how to swing dance. Um, I just did that the other day. Learn how to swing dance, and uh, I um, been. Oh, are you social distancing while you were doing that? No, I was just by myself. You know, That's awesome. Uh, and you were just on YouTube or? Yeah, just watching videos. Yeah, just old, old videos. About and, uh, but, um, yeah, you know, um, you know, you can learn guitar, you can learn piano, you can do anything. But it's like, and to quote another C.S. Lewis quote, he says something about what are trail, what are, uh, what are trains, railways, uh, commuter vehicles, cars, radio, like what are all these things for? What are jobs for except for the the life of the home, the here and now? And uh, I think getting people to be more philosophical and ask the what for questions, it really helps people deal with the, the loss, losses in money. Money is just a piece of paper. Loss of a job, well, you didn't like your job all that much anyways. Or loss of, you know, maybe some of the friends or people you – 
people, you know, some people have gone through divorce and they lose friendships from that, or they go through uh, a death in the family. And, you know, there's a lot of drama that goes on and can be viewed as an evil, but also brings good. It clarifies things. It gets, peels away a lot of the fluff and you help people kind of focus in on the, the, the bare necessities. You get back to the, like Christ and his beatitudes and you get more back into what monks have always been focusing on. Those are the ultimate social distancers, I think, were the monks. And you can find meaning in um, simpler, more kind of ancient things. You know, I, I feel a little guilty. It gets me a little angry, actually. I, I watch all these people on Facebook posting, I'm spending time with my family, and I'm praying more, and I'm like, I'm working 20 hours a day, seven days a week since this happened, or my organization is going to sink into the abyss. And it's so I keep telling my family, just let me write the ship. Just let me, we lost six months of income. So I, I empathize with people out there. And we just did a show on SBA loans with Representative McDermott so we can help people try to save their business. But that is my goal. I have not, I've never been probably less present to my family than in the past two weeks just because of this sort of brutal scramble to we have a film that was supposed to come out and theatrically in the fall and how are we going to change that what kind of audible are we going to call and how do we get the whole team on board so i think there's a lot of us myself included that haven't had time to be depressed because we're 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 rowing frantically and uh, i need to get to a place in the midst of this where i slow down a little bit like you said that was very convicting that quote of c.s lewis is all this is for the life of my family. And so I need to be more present in the midst of this for my family. Yeah. Well, I think of you, Jason, you're like one of the most scrappiest uh, purpose driven people, like, you know, disciplined people. And I think you're going to find purpose in a lot of things. A lot of people, um, I think when their job, they got mixed motives about their job in the first place and then they lose it and they, they struggle with purpose um, in general. And then the virus comes and they, now they really struggle with purpose mainly because it's almost like what Viktor Frankl used to call Sunday neurosis. Back in the, I think, 60s, 70s, 80s, he used to talk about people who just do the, the 9 to 5, and then uh, on Sunday they feel worse, and they tell their psychiatrist, I feel depressed on Sunday because I'm at home and I am uh, i don't know what I'm doing and all that. And, and Frankl would say it's not, it's not really the Sunday that's the problem. It's that you're kind of like in the state of withdrawal from this like almost euphoric work escapism that happens and then the Sunday neurosis comes. I don't think this applies to you at all, but then you get that work escapism that um, gets them out of it. And then they, they kind of have like a crisis of meaning. And I think that that's true for probably some of the population now that doesn't have anything to do. Some people feel better. Some people feel worse. I think if you have a business. Oh, so all of us, I know I have experienced Sunday neurosis. Let me tell you. After a movie campaign or a political campaign, severe depression sets in. And so I tell people who are on campaigns with me for the first time, I said, you know what? Be prepared. After the March for Life every year, the March for Life for me is an intense period of activity, two or three weeks of just go, 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 go. And I come home and I, I go through this sort of very sad, strange I'm addled with anxiety. I feel like I'm lazy and useless. Yeah. And I have to remind myself, your nervous system's growing back. You've lost your voice. You've been in different cities every day for 21 days. Chill. And I have to tell myself that. 
I've come to know it's going to happen before it happens now. And I always tell this to people and they laugh at me and then they call me a week later. I'm so depressed. And I said, yeah, that's, I told you, I told you that was going to happen. And that's your, I always, I always thought it was maybe withdraw from adrenaline or this hectic activity and inability to be still. Yeah. It's all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Victor Frankl wrote about that. And of course he wrote man search for meaning, which I recommend everybody read, especially now. He also has so much good lines in there about quantitative versus qualitative measurement of human life value because of the, um, there's always the, the Holocaust quotes about 6 million Jews and that, and then, uh, you know, God wouldn't have allowed that. or And he, he'd always say, you know, no good God could allow that many um, people to die. But he, his point there is you, you can't measure that. Like, would you say that after 100,000 or 200,000 or 2 million? Or 3 million Uyghur in concentration camps or the Nuba dodging barrel bombs or... yeah. You know, or, yeah, like how many would you allow God to to let happen before you until you don't let God off the hook anymore? Um, he said that you can't put a quantity on that because every person, even one, is in the sense that one is a horror, and so six million is not more of a horror than even one, and that that's in a, in a more fundamental way. When we start getting into quantities, we're, we're really losing touch. And it's always quantities that happen in our near future, around us. Like, so we wouldn't say, how could there be an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God? And the the um, Iroquois were, millions of Iroquois died from the flu. That's right. We wouldn't say that. No. We would say, how could there be an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God? Because my child is in the hospital with pneumonia. We wouldn't say, how come there could be an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God when kid on the other side of town died from leukemia last week. That's more meaningful. I mean, even if it's a motive for atheism, it's still theologically meaningful in the sense of David and the Psalms. And it's something you can go to God with. But I think bringing a sheer number to God, there's sort of a, I, I, I don't know if it's insincerity or it's just not experience near. It's experience far. It's, it's more the horror of the number, the idea. Just like, again, I keep bringing up C.S. Lewis right now, but he used to say, oh, yeah, when you talk about the distance of the stars from the earth, how, you know, it's a gazillion light years. Like, that's just poetry. It's not a number. It's just pure that's poetry. Beautiful. It's just yeah. meant to intimidate the other person. And We're getting a lot of that in the news right now. 100,000, 200,000 dead. 100, you know, New York City or Italy, 12,000 dead. 1,800 dead you know, this week or this day. And I think in these numbers, you can really tap into primitive feelings, uh, sensationalist, primitive fears. And um, you can just look at the flu deaths. I mean, there's lots of influenza deaths every year. I think there's at least 30,000 right there. And, um, but we take it for granted. And, you know, every traffic, every year, motor vehicle in the U.S., there's 20, I think 20,000 motor vehicle deaths every year in the U.S. And, uh, but we take that for granted. How many people die from malaria? We don't have, if we had a malaria chart of the world right now, we'd be horrified or AIDS 2000 a day. Or... Oh, you'd be horrified. And the CDC probably doesn't say, doesn't tell people how to, you know, doesn't give strong advice on how to uh, reduce HIV, you know, or for various. Uh, They're never going to tell you to social distance to prevent HIV if oh, they can be crass. Well, because probably not having anal sex is pretty much a form of social distancing, I would say. Yeah, no, you just said it, brother. I wasn't going to say it, but I'm glad you did. 
So, um, but, but that's what's, you know, there's two quotes that come to my mind always. I quote them all of the time. And one is Rene Girard's um, victimism is feigning concern for the vulnerable for power. And when I hear these numbers thrown out and I hear such concern for the elderly, such concern for the immunocompromised, but this concern is immediately fouled with a massive centralization of power, taking away ancient liberties. I wonder, is this a form of victimism? Excuse me. And how come we're not hearing about the suicides? How come we're not hearing about what are the numbers of people who are going to die because of un- uh, essential treatment, for example, I'm due for a colonoscopy. My father got colon cancer when he was around my age. That's not going to happen now. So if I get diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in six months and die, you know, how many people right now are going to miss their mammograms? How many women for their colonoscopies? How many other medical treatments aren't going to be made available because of this global shutdown, this pandemic, people worried about co-pays, they lost a job, they lost their insurance, how many suicides, what happens if there's social unrest? Yeah. We're not hearing that. Another quote, or not a quote, but a use a word that that Eric Vogelin used a lot was the o- opaque, opaque language. And opaque language is always used by the t- tyrants, tyranny. And there's so much news and so much information, but it is you cannot see through it. Yeah. There's no clarity in these numbers. There's no clarity on really how many people have it, really how many people are dying. We saw in Italy now, they were fudging the numbers. In Hawaii, the first death reported turned out to be false. And, you you know, my viral video that exposed fake testing centers. Yeah, I love that video. I mean, it's terrible that they're doing that, but it's good that you exposed it. I, I didn't realize the one case in Hawaii was not. The first case, now there's been a second case today that just report was reported. So now we just have... One, one person, you know, my father died of cancer, the bio, not my biological father, but the man who raised me mm-hmm. and he didn't die of cancer, but we always tell people he died of cancer, but guess what he died from mm-hmm. the flu, yeah, the flu and pneumonia. And so there are a lot of people dying from, they were severely immunocompromised like my father. We said he died of lung cancer, but really he died of, I mean, he died of the flu. No one said that. We said my father died of cancer and but everyone who dies of cancer now, if my father died of the coronavirus, he would have been a statistic for the coronavirus took a life. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's all what you call the thing, and victimism is all about role-playing. It's the doctor is the hero in the white coat, and the, you know, it's what I died of. I died of something that I'm famous because I died, or you know, I had COVID, I'm famous now. You see celebrities posting that they had COVID, and it's, it's sort of like a badge of honor or some kind of weird, weird You know a thing. friend of mine who's a, a true hero, a true war hero? I was talking to him on the way over here, my best friend, Three Purple Hearts, and he said that we live in an age. I told him this. This is what his response was. I said, somebody posted on my Facebook that Illinois is just overwhelmed with deaths and that the, the uh, graveyard near her house, there's funerals all day because of covid so i googled how many deaths in illinois up until this point and there were 43 so i i posted to under her can there have only been 43 deaths so far due to covid there are weekends i can post show you where there have been more than 43 gunshot deaths in chicago alone oh. i said can you not can you please tell me are the numbers it's possible are the numbers they're reporting not accurate so i was sharing this with my friend who is a real hero 
and has suffered greatly in serving this country. And he said, we live in an age where people mistake fame for glory. And that's what you're saying, right? Like, oh, I have COVID. Yeah. Like it makes them special. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw a doctor the other day. I'm a doctor. I'm just in my Ford F-150 at a gas station. I, it's a Sunday. And I see a neurologist with his white coat. I was in Kailua. And he, he's, he, he's, a, he's an outpatient neurologist. I guarantee you he wasn't working that day. But he had his white coat on, and his wife's in the driver's seat, and he's getting gas. But why does he have his white coat on? And uh, I went up and talked to him for a couple minutes, but. Well, we have a just, lieutenant governor who's in his like scrubs every day. That's strange, but it's it sort is, of a it's like it's victimism, isn't it? It's victimism because wherever there's a victim, there's a hero. You're always in this victim hero dynamic, and uh, I think honestly, is there a motive to overreport? Yeah, maybe there's maybe a motive to underreport in China for obvious reasons. Um, and now the one the one conspiracy I do adhere to is the idea that the WHO is trying to protect China right now. China gives them so much money, and um, there's some videos online about that. But um, in, in in terms of protect and deny Taiwan's existence, and there's there's um, which Taiwan, a free society, did an amazing job. That's right, stopping and COVID. And WHO won't say a word about that. And they're they're just taking the mainline China kind of uh, policy and um, not, not being as objective as they can. Well, my podcast yesterday, you need to listen to, is with Steve Mosier. By the way, I was like, this is the best podcast I've ever done yesterday. There's so much information. And then I feel like yours is just it's not exactly on par with that. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the he wrote a book, Steve Mosier. I, I, you know, you probably know Steve Mosier. I know of him. Oh, so yeah. I interviewed yeah. Steve Mosier yesterday, and he was on Laura Ingram the day before. So that was, it was, you know, Laura, if you get on Laura, then that's like she screens out my guests. Okay, <laughs> but um, yeah, he was just talking about what a great job Taiwan did. But he wrote a book on uh, on the how China is just this big bully, and they bully these organizations. They don't influence organizations not to use use them to serve their national interests, yeah, or the interests of the Communist Party of China. I should say, not the interests of the Chinese people. Yeah, um, but I want to go back to like maybe if you can just help me or help the folks listening. If, if they're the different types of folks, if you're, if, if I'm depressed because of my business, do I need to try to find a psychiatrist? Yeah, it's really easy to get a talk therapist today. You don't need to see the likes of me. You know, I'm kind of more. Medication. I know I wanted them only to see you because I want them <laughs> quoting. There you go. You know, Fulton Sheen and yeah. C.S. Lewis. <laughs> well, I do my best. Uh, I think patients sometimes just stare at me when I, uh, but you know, a lot of them are very thankful and I prescribe books as often as, pres- as I prescribe medications. Now, Fulton Sheen was a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Fulton Sheen, I don't even know. No, he wasn't a psychiatrist because that's a medical doctor. But um, but he, he yeah, definitely he, was well-read in psychiatry, right? Absolutely. Psychology. Absolutely. Yeah, I love Fulton Sheen. And he just had a passion for psychology like many people in the 50s and 60s did at the height of Freudianism. And, and uh, you know, he was kind of, Fulton Sheen was living in that time, so he was preoccupied by it. Um, which is all, all of his writings kind of show that, don't they? They do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I would say get a talk therapist and, uh, they're easy to do. There is, it's easy to get one with telehealth being what it is today. What, one of the nice things about this crisis has been 
uh, it's all, a lot of the telehealth restrictions have been list, totally lifted. You can even use FaceTime right now to talk to a talk therapist. Not a lot of the privacy restrictions. And these uh, tech companies are having to figure out how to talk to doctors and therapists, make it more easy for people. It's super easy now. And um, when you're isolated uh, and you can't go to an appointment, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Yeah, and then I think for those of us, we need to, I've become disciplined in just calling all my friends. Like I've made lists of friends, friends who've lost their jobs, friends who are going through rough times, friends who live in, in you know, Washington, D.C., in a 20-story building, in a studio apartment. Like, those are the people we need to be calling, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would call, I would check in with people who you feel have been uh, the most hit. I got a friend that runs a, he sells, um, Poke and I'm and he, he's in need of some help. So what's just, Poke for the people of the world? <laughs> oh my bad. Poke is uh, one of the best gifts of Hawaii and the food world to the world. It's spreading across the U.S. now, but it's basically just raw ahi with Japanese sauces and and. Seaweed. Is this the place you took me to? It is. Well, that place is good. Yeah, ahi assassins. Yeah, just a great place. But anyways, yeah, try to use your um, best instincts and find uh, what people are. Are which people are most hurting? Yeah, because this is getting, it's going to get worse. I'm already I'm already very antsy. I already have that Sunday. What's that called? That Sunday Sunday neurosis. Sunday neurosis just from and I've been working very hard, keeping very busy, but it's just the world is very quiet. Yeah, everything is just feels very strange, and it has me in a general state of uneasiness and anxiety. Uh, so I have to imagine it's going to get worse. And I'm surrounded by all of my children in a, a vibrant neighborhood and lots of friends. And I have to imagine for a lot of folks, this is, is going to be, you were learning really how social we are as creatures, aren't we? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's kind of what a virus is. It's a virus is the dark side of our, so our connectedness, our genetic connectedness, you know, and, that's, that's and they're really just one big family. Yeah, we are I mean, on a positive note. We can influence each other's genes. You know, you can bring out the best in your friends and uh, inspiring them. Well, I'll tell you, I had just two very obvious goals when this became clear to me two weeks ago it was happening. I said to my team, I said, guys, here's our goals. This is an empathy-generating exercise. We want the world to know and feel what the Uyghur and occupied East Turkestan are going through. Let's get those camps closed. And two, we do not want the Vatican-China deal in September, to be renewed. We want the church to regain its sovereignty over the church, and we want the church to be a witness for Jesus Christ and a witness for the faith in China, which under this current deal is not happening. Those were my initial goals. We wrote them down. We said, let's do this, and it's been pretty, we've been pretty good at getting the message out there in the midst of all of this. But then I realized, wait a second, our mission is to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable literally my staff is vulnerable. My donors are vulnerable. My neighbors are, the whole world has now become part of our mission and it's a bit confusing and overwhelming. Yeah. You know, so now all of us are called to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable. Yeah, I agree. There's a great quote that, and then I want you to close out for us. There's a great quote from Nick Wojcik. Do you know Nick? Yeah, I met him. You met Nick? Where did you meet Nick? Yeah, this guy with no arms and no legs. He's from Australia. Oh, no. I may have met him at a conference. Yeah. He's a speaker. He's He's the best public speaker I've ever seen. Yeah, he's an amazing speaker. 
And we spoke together, and I've said this before on the podcast, we spoke together at a tent rally in Mexicali in the midst of all the killings that were going on. There was this evangelical-type tent revival. And so there I was speaking at a tent revival in Mexicali, and it was very hot, and 20,000 people filled this huge, like, Ring, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey circus event, and he was on stage speaking, and he's so animated with no arms and no legs, but he's the most expressive speaker, and I'm just listening to him talk in awe. And he was talking about it in his darkest place. He said, God, you have never reached your arm out to me. And he said, I heard God's voice say, because that's because I, there's someone behind you I need you to reach your arm out to and lift them up. And he was like, I don't have arms, Lord. He goes, you can reach people up behind you. And so I think for me, when I'm sad, when I'm lonely, when I'm depressed, it reminds me that there are people out there who are sad, who are lonely, and are depressed. And so that's what helps me. I thank God for those moments of despair and darkness because it makes me think how, how um, what's the word I'm looking for, how uh, blind I can be to the suffering of people around me. And so when I'm suffering, it reminds me to pay attention to my surroundings, pay attention to the people in my life. So maybe this is an opportunity for all of us together to say, let's pay attention to other people. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing about, like, I think this virus can teach us too that life is not going to be fair. And a lot of people who hope for utopia or hope for a kind of rigid moral structure to the universe or to, uh, they're not going to find it. And instead they need to adopt another worldview a deeper worldview that has more to do with um, shared sufferings. And um, that's not just not fair. And also shared victories. And so if, if, if it leads to more statism and big government, then I think people aren't learning a lesson that you can't fi fix a, a lot of things like this. Nature uh, bites back with a vengeance sometimes. Um, and I think this is nature telling us that it, nature doesn't like globalization. I don't think bats and pangolins and wet markets and Im immigrants flying all over viruses and airplanes all over the world. I don't, I'm not sure that's what uh, nature. Um, In totalitarianism, this is, this is the communist party of China punishing the world. Uh, yeah. You can't keep the vulnerable in a box. You read my book, the race to save our century. Yeah. That was the whole point of my book that you think you can keep tyranny in a box, genocide and democide in a box, you think it could be the Armenians over there, it's going to erupt, yeah. and then it's going to be the Jews, then it's going to be China, and it's going to be World War II, it's going to be the whole world at war, and it's going to be cities being firebombed and atomic bombs falling on city centers. If you think that you can keep the Uyghurs in concentration camps, if you think you can have ISIS liquidating whole ethnic communities well, we go about our life as business as usual, and it's going to stay there. It will not stay there. So the, the People's Republic of China starved 60 million of its own people through stupidity at the very least. The Great Famine, the Cultural Revolution robbed the people of China and the world of a beautiful heritage. The one-child policy is the greatest form of democide in the history of the planet Earth. And that regime now has you and me on lockdown. People from Iceland to Brazil on lockdown. We couldn't keep tyranny in a box. We have these phones. We have this nice things that, that the tyrants gave us, exploiting labor, 
all these big American brands, big global brands, exploiting labor. And so maybe that should be the lesson that liberalism, true, a true liberal, we have all these people talking about the death of liberalism. And by liberalism, we mean free markets, free speech. To me, this isn't the death of liberalism. This is statism killing us. Yeah. And I, I, hope, I hope that lesson is learned. Well, Dr. Cook, you gave me a lot of time already, and I know you just had a very long day of work yourself with your, your patients. Is there any closing words, any books that you would like to recommend or any other C.S. Lewis quotes you would like to I would just uh, share. share Victor Frankl's favorite quote. It's actually a Nietzsche quote, but it's a wonderful and it's true. I don't care who it comes from. But Nietzsche said, man can endure almost anyhow so long as he retains a why. So we can get through anything if we, if we believe there's a purpose to it. It's, it's when we lose a sense of purpose. And you, you can't derive a sense of purpose from meaning. It's like your favorite, one of your favorite quotes, Jason, from Woody Allen, is uh, when a man falls in a uh, manhole, that's comedy. But when he stubs his toe, it's tragedy. Because when you stub your toe, it's tragic because... It's your toe. Can't can't put it in a film. You can't make... It doesn't really tell... It doesn't make a good story. And I think that uh, people, more than minimizing pain and suffering people want to have a good story it's the most important part of our our human that's our human side not our animal side and we need a good story and uh, you can always help people find a story even in their their setbacks when they're despairing and help them regain the sense that um, they're part of a story it's a story with uh, a villain uh, a hero um, who you know maybe one of us or be a hero in history at some point in history um but you know it's it's a story that's worth telling is your life would you want to tell this story to someone later or do you think your life is a book worth reading and would you go through these sufferings if it led to a good story that would be worth reading and i think you can help people get through almost anything if you remind them of that that core fact about our human nature that's what we all want deep deep down and and what is that story well, I think you got to go to religion for that. You got to go. So is that, you want me to say that? I'll say what this. Go well, ahead. Dr. Cook, I will end yeah. on that, brother. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. And what I'll say the story is, is that God became man and suffered for us to free us so we could live forever. I always say this isn't a Catholic podcast, but I'm a Catholic. And even in, sometimes I will lie in bed at night and I will say, what if there is no God? What if there is this big, vast nothingness? Then I, in the face of this big, vast nothingness, want to live like Jesus Christ to show that I can live a life in solidarity with those who suffer. That's what I want to do. And I think that's the most beautiful way we can live. And as a filmmaker, and you know, you know Jung, Dr. Cook, better than I do, and all film today, Jung is the most influential psychiatrist who ever lived because every movie you've ever watched in Hollywood, the, the bare bones of that story were written by Jung. And what is that story? That we leave the ordinary world, we have a call to adventure, we struggle, we have allies and enemies, we go into the innermost cave, we have victory, and then we come back to the ordinary world and make it a better place. So that's all of us now. We were in the ordinary world, 
COVID came in. That was her call to adventure. Only heroes answer the call. So what is the answer to every call of adventure? To carry the burdens of others, to share the sufferings of others, to learn from that experience. So when you get to go back to the ordinary world, if you get to go back to the ordinary world, it's a more beautiful place. Of, of course, one of the most beautiful lines that this room reminds me of is what Frodo said to Sam. Do you remember what Frodo said to Sam? Will, uh, will one day all sad things come untrue? Ooh, say that again? That's not what I was going to say, but... I think Frodo asked Sam, Sam, will one day all sad things, could they come untrue? That's beautiful. Yeah. And, well, what I was thinking of is he said to Sam, we saved the Shire, but not for us. So that reminds me that even if things look mortally, and finally, for me, to come to an end... It's not about me. We'll save the Shire for our posterity. And so that's to me what we're in the midst of doing right now. And that's why I've been banging the drum that the most important thing we can do in all of this is preserve our freedom, our liberties, and our constitution. But in the midst of all that, Dr. Cook, I wanted you on so that we could, um, you could share your expertise. So thank you, Dr. Cook. You're welcome. It's an honor and a privilege. And this episode is coming to an end. This has been another episode of the Jason Jones Show. As always, this episode has been brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Stay tuned for their new film, our new film, Divided Hearts of America, in theaters everywhere later this year. And join the great campaign to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable by going to thegreatcampaign.org. Sign up to be a part of the Vulnerable People Project and the great campaign to promote human dignity. Until tomorrow, aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh, 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 oh,